0: This morning, we are going to be looking at a book of the Bible that maybe not a lot of us think about a whole lot. We probably don't read it a whole lot. To be honest, it's not a book of the Bible that I've spent a whole lot of time always looking at, studying a lot, thinking about a whole lot. But it's a book of the Bible that I think it's important um, that we look at. And so this morning, we are going to spend a little bit of time looking through... The massive book of Obadiah. <laughs> what? Obadiah, right? Some of you are like, that's a book in the Bible? Obadiah, right? Where, where is that? Uh, it's a book in the Old Testament. We'll, we'll get into a little bit more of, you know, kind of the context, the history of Obadiah in a little bit. But kind of the, the key question today, or kind of the context of our message this morning is, where do you find your joy? Where do you find your joy? Is it in the destruction of those that maybe you don't necessarily get along with? Or is it in the salvation of those that you don't necessarily get along with? Where do you find your joy? Is it in the destruction of your enemy or in the salvation of your enemy? Where do you find your joy? And as I was putting this message together this week... Uh, It just so happened that it kind of became a fitting message when, unfortunately, we had the tragedy that took place in New Zealand this week, right? For those of you that maybe saw that in the news, um, you know there was a tragedy that took place um, Friday morning with the shootings in in New Zealand where the the gentleman attacked the two uh, mosques in, in New Zealand. Uh, and at this point, they, there's at least 50 individuals that have been killed and 50 others that are, are injured, um, all with the, the mindset of, of of kind of being an anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant. All, it was all a, a hate crime. Again, it was a hate towards a certain people group, a certain ideal group. Having hatred towards a certain through a certain thing. And so this morning, that's kind of what we're talking about, is where do you find your joy? Is it in destruction towards a a group of people that you don't see eye to eye with? Or is it in finding salvation, hoping they can find salvation in the people that you don't agree with, that you don't see eye to eye with? And so Obadiah, it's a book with a prophecy. But why? It's about uh, another nation that many of us have never Even heard of potentially, it's a very small book, and and maybe it even feels a little bit random in the whole context of Scripture when we look at. And maybe you sit there and you go, "How did Obadiah even make it into the canon of the Bible? How did it even make it into Scripture?" Well, actually, it's pretty important when you actually look at the whole context of Scripture. Obadiah, even though it's a very short little Bible or book of the Bible. It's pretty important, but in 1 Kings 11, verse 41, the author makes kind of an interesting comment. He basically says that you can read the rest of the stuff about King Solomon's life and his wisdom in all these other books, which we don't find in the Bible. Why? Because the Bible only gives us part of the story. It only tells us some of what happened during all of the time of history, right? The Bible doesn't tell us everything that happened from the beginning of time through the end of the New Testament era. It doesn't give us every single detail about everything that happened, right? There was a lot more that went on, right? If you look at John twenty-one twenty-five, what does John tell us about Jesus' life? It says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not, eat, not have room for the books that would be written. If everything that was written down about Jesus' life, there wouldn't even be enough room in the world for all the books, right? Sandy's laughing because she brought that up in our small group a few weeks ago. We talked about that, right? Not everything is recorded in Scripture that happened. And so we see this theme throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that we only have a glimpse of everything that happened, And this tells us that we ha- what we have in Scripture is very intentional. Everything that made it into the Bible is very intentional, it's very strategic. Every verse, every chapter, even the genealogies, right? Sometimes we look at it and we're like, why are the genealogies there? What's the importance of it? Everything in Scripture is important. Every piece of the Bible is there for a reason. And so we need to stop, we need to read it, and we need to take it... Seriously, and understand why it is in Scripture. So why is Obadiah in the Bible? Why is this short book that is just a single chapter in the Bible? Well, here's some basic um, uh, facts about the book of Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It only has 21 verses in it. Who wrote it? Well, Obadiah the prophet wrote it. That's why it's named Obadiah. There's a dozen different Obadiahs that are mentioned throughout Scripture. Um, and so, you know, which Obadiah is it? We don't always know exactly because there's a number of them. But the book was written somewhere between 500, 587 B.C. and 800 B.C. So we don't know exactly the time frame when the book was written. Um, but it's, it's one of the older books, potentially, of the Old Testament And it's a prophecy or a judgment against, and now here's the nation that I'm talking about that many of you may not know much about, the nation of Edom. The nation of Edom, right? So by a show of hands, how many of you know who Edom is, the nation of Edom? Okay, so there's a few hands, there's some hands going up, but there's not too many hands that know who the nation of Edom is, right? Who is Edom? Well, this morning we're going to get into that. So the story starts, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, with Isaac and Rebekah, who have their two sons, right? The twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And you you may remember them, right? Esau is the older of the two twin brothers who sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew, right? The two were literally fighting from the time that they were born with each other. They were fighting inside their mother's womb. And it only made it worse because why? Why? Their parents played favorites. Genesis 25-28 says Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Parents playing favorites? No, that never happens. Well, okay, it happens. But it doesn't typically end super well, does it? So there's this constant tension, constant maneuvering, constant fighting that takes place between Jacob and Esau. And Genesis focuses on Jacob because it's his descendants that will eventually become the nation of Israel, ultimately paving the way for Jesus to come, and that's where we find our salvation. Meanwhile, Esau fathers his own nation that will eventually become known as Edom. His descendants were the Edomites. And just like Jacob and Esau don't get along, Israel and Edom don't get along with each other as well. So much so that in Numbers 20, when the Israelites were escaping from Egypt, which we just talked about over the last few weeks, when they went to cross the road during the time when they were wandering from Egypt to the Promised Land, they went to cross a road and they were going to go through Edom. The Edomites actually brought out their army... And they were going to threaten the Israelites if they were going to try to cross into their territory. That's how much dislike there was between the Edomites and the Israelites. That they were like, you're not even going to step foot into our territory. Numbers 20:20 says, Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. So again, remember, this was 400 years. The, the Israelites had been in Egyptian slavery for 400 years. So that gives you a context of the discord, of the hatred that was there from the Edomites against the Israelites. There was a real discord between these two nations. It gets worse. Much later in 2 Kings 25, Babylon conquers Israel. They destroy the wall that protect the city. They they burn the city. They tear down the temple. They take captive all their best people, right? This is where Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel are taken captive into Babylon. And we read about this in Psalm 137, Ezekiel 35, and in Amos chapter 1, that Eden's response to all of this was that they thought it was wonderful. They thought it was great. That Israel had been taken over and plundered by Babylon. In fact, they went and they actually plundered Israelite cities themselves as well. And they actually took some refugees themselves who hadn't been taken by the Babylonians. So they went and they piggybacked on what the Babylonians had done. And they took whatever they could take for themselves as well. All this to say that Israel and Edom did not get along with each other at all. So all that sets the stage for now, what we want to talk about this morning in looking at the book of Obadiah, which again is a prophecy about the nation of Edom. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 3 of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You will live in the clefts of the rock and make your home on the heights. You will say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? So we'll pause there for a moment. Edom literally had their capital city in the clefts of the rock on the top of a hill. So they were literally built into a mountain. Their capital city was built into a mountainside. They thought that it was impossible for them to be attacked or defeated. They thought they had this, this geographic location that could not be defeated, that it was a perfect spot. But God told them in this prophecy that their pride had caught up to them. He said, your pride has caught up to you, that they were both literally and spiritually in danger. Now we're going to take a moment and we're going to read through the rest of this passage. So it's a little bit of a longer passage and then we'll break it down. So starting with verse 4. It says, Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If these came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you, would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. Verse 8. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Taman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Verse 12. You should not gloat over your brother in in his day of misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they never had, had been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be fire, and Joseph aflame. Esau will be stubble and they will, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from Najab will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. The company of Israelites, Israelite exiles who are in Cana will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sarad Sar- will possess the towns of Najab. Deliverers will go up to Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So it says here there will be no survivors of Esau. No survivors of Esau. The Israelites thought that this was a great prophecy, right? Obadiah tells the Israelites this, and the Israelites are like, oh, this is pretty. God's going to wipe the Edomites off the earth. Like, Oh, this, like they don't like each other, right? This is two nations that don't like each other. They don't get along with each other. This, this is kind of nice. There's nothing like seeing your enemy have justice catch up with them, right? You, you kind of have that feeling of like, ah, vengeance is the Lord's, like righteous vengeance, right? The Edomites were were not so much of a fan. I mean, it's basically God telling them, hey. Well, when I'm judging the Israelites, don't laugh at them. Don't take their stuff, and definitely don't get cocky about your position in the world, because just as I've judged the Israelites, I'm going to judge you as well. Honestly, this prophecy must have been pretty satisfying for the Jews to hear. They probably felt a little vindicated after centuries of fighting. Which brings us to our next question. Why is Obadiah after Amos, right? So if you look at the order of the books of the Bible, the book of Obadiah comes after the book of Amos. Scholars all agree when the Bible was put together, if it followed the pattern of other books, the book of Amos should follow the book of Obadiah, not the opposite way. Based on when it was written and the topics in it, but it's not, and it's believed it all boils down to two verses in chapter 9 of Amos, that quote God, which says this, Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and will rebuild it as it used to be, so that, and so that they may possess the remnant of Edom, all nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. So this is a part of a broader passage talking about the end of time when Jesus has returned and is setting up his kingdom again. So this is talking about the end times when Jesus has returned and he is setting his kingdom up on earth once again. And in these two verses, God highlighted that there will be other believing nations represented when God sets up his kingdom once again. And he specifically singles out, he says that Edom will be represented. That of all the nations that will be there, Edom will be represented. So in other words, he's saying that there will be a remnant of Edomites who will survive to the end and who have given their heart and their lives to God and will be a part of the kingdom of God. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that he's not going to simply just take the Edomites and wipe them off the face of the earth. Because there are some that are going to come to know who Jesus is and come to a relationship with Him. So we know that over time, the Israelites styled the prophecies of Messiah as being just for them, right? In the Old Testament, the Israelites, they thought the Messiah was coming for the Jews. They forgot that the Messiah was not just for the Jews. The Messiah was going to come for the whole world, right? Thankfully. Otherwise, we'd be sitting here and as Gentiles, we'd be going... What, what, what about us, right? What about us? Who, who's coming for us? They forgot the Messiah came for the whole world, not just for the good religious Jews. But the message from the beginning was that God wanted the whole world. God loved everyone. When God made his covenant with Abraham, way back in the book of Genesis, in 12 verse 3, he said, All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Didn't say all Jews it said all peoples. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Isaiah 56 is a powerful passage speaking on the coming Messiah and that he is a hope for all the world. Isaiah 56 verse 7 says, "My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all nations," it says. When even Uh, We even saw this theme in Obadiah, which we just read in verse 15. It says, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. It didn't say some nations. It didn't say a nation. It said all nations. The day of the Lord is near. Obadiah is focused on judgment. But there is also the underlying theme of salvation and hope for all nations, which includes the nation of Edom in this passage. It goes even deeper then we might catch at first glance when we look at this. Language scholars notice something significant when they look at Scripture. So if you go back again to the book of Genesis, the Hebrew word for Adam, which is the first man, right? God created Adam. Literally, it means humanity. It helps shape our understanding that Adam represented all of us when he sinned. It's why Scripture also calls Jesus the second Adam and that he brings salvation to all people. Through, through Jesus, we can find salvation. Now look at the original Hebrew word for Adam, which means humanity, and the Hebrew word for Edom. They're going to be on the screen here. So this is, this is Hebrew here. So if you look at the top one, it means Adam or humanity. The second one means Edom. If you look at the three characters, they're almost identical, right? The three characters are identical The accents underneath are a little bit different. But the three characters themselves are identical characters. You see how that's similar? The modifiers are different, but the letters are the same. And for Jewish readers, they look at that, and and it's, it's a clear connection that God is saying that Edom is still a part of Humanity Edom is a part of humanity. It's a part of all people. it's a part of all nations. Edom is a part of what God sent his son for. It's a part of the salvation plan, which brings us back to the question of, why is Amos in front of Obadiah instead of after? God wanted the Amos passage about Edom receiving salvation at the end of time in our minds. As we read Obadiah. He wanted us to know that the end of the story, or he wanted us to know the end of the story before we read about the judgment that Edom will receive. Because it forces us to ask the question, what do we rejoice at? What do we get excited about? What brings us satisfaction? Are we excited that Edom is destroyed? Or do we get joyful about the fact that Edom is going to be saved? For the Israelites, this would have been a genuine struggle, right? This would have been a struggle because for the Israelites, many of them were going, man, I would love to see Edom destroyed. I would love to see them destroyed, but at the same time, they're going, yeah, but it would be really cool to see them saved too. It would be really cool to see them have the opportunity to be saved and to find salvation. It's a real life struggle. They would know that they are supposed to be happy about salvation, but their human desire, that flesh inside of them, wants that vindication. It wants to see them pay for what they have done. They want to see judgment take place. Ultimately, we're all like Edom to a certain extent, but yet we're all like Israel to a certain extent. Humanity hasn't changed a whole lot. Thousands of years have gone by. Technology has improved. Nations look different, but our underlying sinful nature and the ways that we interact with each other are still so similar when you get down to the basic truth of the matter. As I mentioned, it's kind of where I got to the point of thinking about the tragedy that took place with New Zealand. It's kind of that same type of an idea where someone who simply just had a different mindset than another people group. Who said, I don't see things the same way that another people group sees things. Instead of saying, you know, of just being able to go about life with that people group, he said, I'm going to take it into my own hands. I'm going to take vengeance into my own hands. I'm going to take judgment into my own hands and act on that. Which we know that for none of us, that is not our job. That is not our place. And it's such a shame to see that people have such a hatred towards other people groups that they would choose to do that kind of an act of violence. But it's similar to how the Edomites felt towards the Israelites back in Obadiah's time. It's a powerful story because it resonates with us today. We want others to suffer the consequences for their actions. But at the same time, we want people to have mercy and forgiveness towards us when we wrong people, right? When we make a mistake, when, when we do something towards somebody else to hurt and offend them, we don't want them to have that same vengeance mindset towards us. We want them to have compassion and forgiveness towards us. But yet, when someone wrongs us, we're going, ah, ah, this is our chance. This is our chance to get them. But which way do we turn? Where do we find joy and destruction? We're wanting to see salvation of those who Who don't yet know the Lord. God put Obadiah and this passage in Amos together to confront the question of where do we find our joy? Is our joy based in our sinful flesh or after the heart of God, which is that all may know Him? That's the heart of God, that all may know Him. So, where do we find our joy? Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment, right? We might rationalize and think that we are better because we aren't literally murderers, but Jesus made it clear that what's in our heart is what matters to him. Our anger, our satisfaction, our joy over someone else's suffering, even if that has been nasty to us, even if they've hurt us, they've humiliated us, they've taken advantage of us, whatever reason it is, the response in our heart is what matters to God. God looks at our hearts. Luke 15, 10. I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. So what's the challenge? The challenge then, are we like Jesus... In our joy? Are we desiring salvation for all people? Are we desiring salvation for those who have wronged us? Are we desiring salvation for those who see things differently than we do? Are we desiring salvation for those who have different ideals, those who have different thoughts and different, uh, just different ideology than we do? Are we desiring salvation or are we desiring destruction to come upon them? Destruction, salvation, where do we find our joy? Do we desire salvation for those just like us? Or for everyone? The question is, okay, if we only desire salvation for those who think like we do, who act like we do, who maybe look like we do, how, how do we change that? How, how do we get out of that Mindset. How do we move beyond living in that realm? It's not always an easy fix. It's not always easy to get out of that mindset. But I have four thoughts of how we can move into a place of finding joy in the salvation of people who we don't always see eye to eye with. First thing, number one, immerse yourself in scripture. The more you read God's word, the more it becomes a part of who you are. Immerse yourself in Scripture. Because the more we read God's Word, the more it becomes a part of who we are. And the more we know God's Word, man, the more that love will just come out of us. Number two, immerse yourself in prayer. It makes you more like Jesus. Immerse yourself in prayer. It will make you more and more like Jesus. Number three, find accountability. Invite a couple other Christians into your life. Find accountability. A great way to do that, become a part of one of our community groups. These are people who will challenge you. They'll remind you to become more like Jesus, to love the way that He does. Find a community. Find find partnership with other believers that will hold you accountable, that will build relationship with you. And finally, number four, in addition to praying regularly, pray specifically for those who have hurt you, those who have wronged you, those who you have a difficult time dealing with, pray specifically for them. Pray specifically for those who, who you don't see eye to eye. Pray that God will transform them. Pray that God will save them. Pray that God will help you to see them differently. Pray that He will help you to see them like He does. That He will work in their lives, that He will work in your lives. That your heart will be transformed as well as theirs, let us become people that find joy in salvation, not joy in destruction of others if I can get the worship team to come back up at this point we're going to close out our time here with, with just a, a time of prayer again this morning and I know sometimes this is can be difficult because the reality is, is hurt in our lives is real. When somebody has hurt us, when somebody has offended us, when somebody has wronged us, sometimes it is really hard to move beyond that in our lives. Sometimes it's really difficult to say, you know what? Uh, it's hard for us to not want to see that vengeance, to not want to see that judgment upon those individuals, upon those people. But the reality is, is, you know what, that's not our place for that. It's not our place. God God will take care of that. God, God will do that. Our job is to simply love individuals and to allow God to take care of what He needs to take care of. So this morning, maybe you're sitting there, maybe you've been holding on to some bitterness. Maybe you've been holding on to a hurt. And today is a day that you're ready to give that up. And you need to say, you know what? I just need to come and I need to lay that at the altar. I need, I need to lay down that hurt. I need to lay down whatever I've been holding on to. And I need to just give that to the Lord and say, you know what? I, I can't carry this any longer because it's holding me back. It's preventing me from, from moving forward in my walk with the Lord. It's preventing me from doing all that God is calling me to do because it's holding me back. It's keeping me from being all that God wants me to. To be, so I want to encourage this morning. Maybe there, there's just there's something that you're struggling with. You you know what? There, there's just a, a a people group that I just have such a hard time accepting. And it's time to say, you know what? Despite our differences, despite how I feel, I'm no longer going to pray for destruction. I pray that God would would speak to them, reveal Himself to them, that they may come to know who He is in a a transforming way through the power of the gospel, through the power of the ministry. Because ultimately, God is the only one that can do that. God is the one that can transform hearts and minds and nations and people groups. And so we have to come before the Lord in prayer and believe that God can do the miraculous. And so it starts with prayer. And so myself and a few of our leaders will be up here, with prayer this morning. As always, if there's something else you'd like prayer for this morning, something that does not pertain to our message this morning, you'd like prayer for this morning, you're always welcome to come forward for prayer for that as well. Or if you'd like to just find a spot by yourself, you're always more than welcome to. They're going to lead us through a song, and then we'll close out in prayer together.